Welcome to Rocco Radio. I'm Jason Bryan, and you're listening to Well Connected. It's been a year since we started Rocco Radio, and so far we've interviewed over 40 subject matter experts in their field, in six different types of radio show. In recent years here at Rocco, we've been working with James Williams, aka Mr. Connectivity, a consultant who's had a lot of experience in telecoms, as well as also the SMS messaging arena. In a recent interview with James, we thought we should get to know him a little better. James tells us about his background in the world of A2P SMS and how he started in telecoms. I think for me, the word partnership is absolutely key. And that's what I do. And that's what I'm about. It's enabling the partnerships between mobile operators, aggregators and indeed other companies in the industry. Well, I'm here with James Williams, Mr. Connectivity himself. And since I work very closely with James, it's important to know his history a little bit better. And therefore, I'm very pleased to be here with James and to try and understand how he got into telecoms. You're a Yorkshire lad, aren't you? I am indeed from Yorkshire, which is a, well, West Yorkshire to be exact, which is a county, a region in the north of England. Yes, I am. Those four regions, North, East, South and West, well, there was talk at one point in time about there being their own country and separating like a bit Catalonia style from the UK, but I doubt that's going to happen. It won't happen. So you were born in... I was born in Bradford, indeed. In Bradford. Yeah, in the Bradford Royal Infirmary. A very interesting multicultural city, Bradford. It is. It changed a lot. So it, Bradford really grew at the end of the 1950s, beginning of the 1960s, when the UK had a shortage of workers. And essentially, a call was put out to the far corners of what was historically the Commonwealth, the British Empire, if you'd like to call it that. And the call was answered by many people who arrived. And lots of people came to Bradford and Birmingham. There are certain cities around the UK where lots of people came from abroad. So it's very, very multicultural indeed. Good mix. From this environment, let's say, when you were a child, what ideas did you have about which career direction you would take? I haven't attained. I have always had fixed ideas, not I say always, but from a fairly young age, I had fixed ideas of what I like to do. And what I wanted to do was to create a massive, huge corporation and employ tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. And I'm not joking. I had that vision. I've gone slightly awry, and I'm not employing the hundreds of thousands of people I envisaged. But at the end of the day, as you get a little bit older, you think, what's important to yourself in life? And you have to enjoy what you do. It's a total cliche, Jason, but you absolutely have to enjoy it. Those that don't enjoy it, and I have to admit, I've been in that position myself a couple of times in the past. And I remember one particular situation where I was in that that exact place where I really didn't enjoy where I was from a career perspective. And you have to make that change. You do have to make the change where possible. But some people in the circumstances, in the location, they cannot make the change and they've got to make the best of it. But I firmly believe, if possible, you have to be in a good place in your work environment because it affects your life outside of work as well. What was your first job, James? My first job? Well, when I was at school... I had holiday jobs and one of them, I had various ones, one of them was working in a sports shop called Sports Shoes Unlimited in Bradford City Centre. And at the time it was actually the world's largest sports shoe shop. 
And it was really fun, except I didn't do such a good job of earning money because I actually spent everything I earned on equipment and shoes and everything (laughs) from the shop because I got such a great discount. So that wasn't so successful, but it was fun. And that actually introduced me into the world of sales. And I really learned about peer pressure and the strength of brands at that time. And when I was working in the shop, you had Reebok and Nike. They were the absolute preeminent brands. Another time you had Sorconi, New Balance and others trying to break in. But if brands, I learned from a fairly young age, if brands have a real stranglehold, it can be quite difficult for new ones to come in. And I saw that early on. So that was one of my holiday jobs. The other one was working for a company called Black's Leisure, and they are a subcontractor and make things for, there's a department store in the UK called Marks and Spencers, which is quite famous globally. And there's a pharmacy chain called Boots, which is well known of in the UK and I think beyond as well. And they subcontracted the manufacturing of some of their things out. And I actually worked on a big shop floor in a manufacturing company, threading elastic round it wasn't a very exciting job, Jason. <laughs> Threading elastic round the bags, which designed to put cotton wool buds in for ladies for makeup kits. I also did something like this in my past, and I have to say, it taught me something about patience. Uh, about patience. It does. It, and, it taught uh, it taught me something about patience, and you got to talk to a whole different cross section of people who were working there, and I saw that, and it was really, really interesting. Later on, when I was at uni went to university. I worked and lived in Germany for quite a bit during my degree and I actually more or less worked full-time at McDonald's and that's probably a separate story but I found that work to be particularly interesting from the people perspective because as soon as you put on that uniform it's a great leveler and in those days I remember that so this is going back 25 years ago it was green and white striped uniform shirt and I think it was green trousers. It wasn't the most fetching, I have to admit, but it was a true total leveller. And I learnt a lot from that. And McDonald's is one of those brands which cuts across all levels of life. It doesn't matter rich or poor and well-educated or less educated people. Lots of people go to McDonald's. But the perception people have towards the workers in places like that Let's say it's interesting to be on the receiving end of that. And I learned a lot on how not to treat purple people. And I learned how important it is to treat people, anybody in the service industry, with the utmost respect. And as you know, Jason, from your extensive travels, and I travel a lot, it's really, really important to have the service industry personnel on your side. So mm. I learned that. These are my the holiday jobs and yeah. jobs during uni. So I learned a lot of important lessons from them. But what was your university degree then that you were studying? It was European business and German. So at school, I concentrated on languages. I know it's hard for people to believe that, but I did English literature. I did French and German and a bit of Spanish at the same time as well. So it was just purely languages, but I ended up doing European business and German at uni. The German side of things was absolutely no problem whatsoever. But I actually took my maths exams at school a year early, so I hadn't touched maths for over three years when I started doing statistics and accounting and everything. So usually I think all of you out there, if you've been to university, you'll think, and you've probably experienced it yourself, that the first year is where you have so much fun, you go out partying, you have a great time. And at the end of your degree, as you're coming to those final exams, which are the make or break and decide your degree 
essentially and ultimately can affect heavily your career prospects, that's when you don't do any partying and you get really serious. But for me, I actually found my first couple of, which was my first term, was actually the hardest, just getting to grips with the whole statistics side of things. But the communications aspect was really important. And I remember the statistics teacher I had at the time was amazing, was able to really, really easily transpose fairly difficult concepts into really easy to grasp things and he actually used the whole concept of gambling in Las Vegas for that and that's probably why I actually do like going to Las Vegas quite Oof. a bit I know you don't Jason but I do I've got nothing against Las Vegas but there we go so tell me after this university degree what was the first position you took in the well during my degree it was a bit unusual. During my first year, I actually had an industrial placement. I think for me, it was important to choose a degree where you're immersed quite quickly into the world of work. And I secured a placement which was with a company which was then called uh, Siemens Nixdorf. And Nixdorf was a global company. And lots of you will know the point of sales terminals. So essentially the cash registers at supermarkets then they have high-speed printers that actually print your telephone bills your energy supplier bills those guys were the world leaders in that and what was particularly interesting during that time was during my placement i just started a couple of months into it and it was a six so seven month placement the company was actually fully bought out by siemens so my first real proper period of work experience in my life and you saw an organization being changed totally. So people being made redundant, other people coming in from HQ in Germany, taking over positions. And it was really, really interesting. So I had a placement there. I did well, apparently. And in my third year, I secured a placement at Siemens's HQ in Munich. And I worked with them for eight months in the public telecommunications division on the government side of things. And at the end of that, I received a job offer, which was fantastic. So coming into the fourth year of my degree, I actually had a firm concrete job offer. So from that perspective, you know, nothing is guaranteed in life. But for me, the pressure was off. And I actually had some fun in my fourth year while everyone else was knuckling down. So I know a bit different, but hey, as people know, that's me. So that's how I got into the whole world of communications, because it was through my placements. It was Siemens next off, but then... The next one was with the Siemens' Public Communications Division, and I actually started off as a finance commercial graduate trainee. It's a horrible title, and please, any companies out there listening to it, do not give your graduate entrance into your business any titles like that, because there were two of us in the business in the whole of the UK. And with that title going before us, it wasn't good, and it made life a little bit difficult for us. I was shunted around various departments, in the communications company the focus of gpt csl the bit i was in again it was on the public sector side of things and they were providing telephony solutions for ambulance services the government and other public sector divisions like town councils so it was interesting and i saw a lot then but for me it was my first year of real employment following my degree was when I had a period of experience of two or three months in many different departments. Mm. There was sales and marketing. There was the finance aspect of it, everything like that. And I actually ended up as a commercial analyst. So I was Mr. Numbers. Yeah. So I started off as actually Mr. Numbers when it settled. 
I actually wanted to get into sales. But again, this is another lesson I've personally learned what not to do, certainly if you're a company, you take on some new starters into your company as graduates, you give them free reign, so you send them around various departments, you allow them to choose which area they'd like to go into, providing their openings, and then you say to them, I'd love to go into the sales area, and guess what was said to me? Any guesses as to why I couldn't go into sales, Jason? Was it because I don't talk enough? <laughs> you had no sales experience. Exactly. I'm not joking. Yeah. I am not joking. And it that just blew my mind. So that flicked a switch in my head. And I thought, hang on a second. I haven't got the sales experience. Okay, so what do salespeople do within the company? They've got a base amount of product knowledge. They have essentially the presentation skills because presenting and teaching, I know, are two very different things. But they've got the presentation skills, they've got some product knowledge. So I haven't got the sales experience, but let me get the skill set up. And part of my job was coordinating the implementations of things. And one of the departments I was involved with was the training services division. And the manager at the time, I remember very well, said to me, James, you'd make a great training instructor. And I'm thinking, but Christina, I don't know anything about the products. I don't know anything about teaching or training. And she said, no, 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 you would. I, and, I sense that about you, actually. You have that real charisma in terms of presenting things. I love it. I really, really do like it. And it clearly helps if you actually really, truly enjoy the subject you have. But for me, it's the dynamics of being with the people. And that was really, really interesting. So I actually got into the world of customer training from being commercial analyst. So it was a total flip on its head. And in those days, it was very, very strange because I have to admit, the world of training, there are certain industries with a so-called glass ceiling or where, for example, it's very, very heavily male-dominated. But the world of training services, I can tell you, it was totally the opposite. So out of about 40 training instructors, there were two men, and I was the youngest. So I was the youngest person in the department, and I was one of only two men. So the dynamics were very, very different. And I can see how it is hard. And I know there are many different people involved in the world of telecoms who are actively promoting women in telecoms. And I think so they should. You should not have this situation where a particular job is, no, that's for a man or this is for a woman. But certainly back then, training was very, very much female dominated. But I learned a lot from my training days. And guess what? I survived without a mobile phone, Jason. When did you get your first mobile phone, James? I actually got my first mobile phone. It was my own one. Was it a people's phone? I'm trying to remember the brand. It was a long, long time ago. And I remember I was working in Luton, in a place called Capability Green, on an industrial park then. And I remember buying the phone. So I'm trying to buy time, Jason, because I'm trying to remember the year. But I would have been about 22, uh, 1994, something like that. Oh. Yes. Which is very, very basic indeed, 1994, 1995. But I survived quite well without one from the work perspective. I had my first mobile phone in 1995, and it's because I started working for O2. Ah, okay, uh, so you got that from which work, was your employer. At the time, Cellnet, so yes. you know, one of those big phones. Anyway, back to you. Um, we got diverted a little bit on the phone story. Yes, yeah, sorry. But you I were, do like phones. 
you were working in communications quite clearly and you I were was. working uh, in, in I'd never intended for that to happen in any way shape or form it just happened that Siemens is such a huge vast corporation they make yeah. everything from hearing aids to power stations I just ended up in the, on the telecom side so what of did things. you take from the experience of being a trainer I learned never to assume anything absolutely and specifically as a trainer I spent 95% of my time at customer sites and also I was involved on bringing to service support so the actual day the communication systems went live I was actually there delivering the support and helping people with actually using it and sorting out problems and you had to really think on your feet there was no day which was identical but my key thing was never assume anything and it was important actually to speak clearly I come from Yorkshire and I suppose ultimately my real accent would be very regional but I learned particularly in that job just to try and keep it as neutral as possible so people can understand and it has helped me going forward particularly with foreign travel extensive foreign travel so I learned those things but as well in many training situations you have people of a whole variety of ages I remember the largest difference of ages I had I had one guy on a course and they were from a mobile operator in Luxembourg. I think it was just one at the time, PT Luxembourg. One guy who was 18, it was his first job. And the guy who was with him was his boss. He was approaching retirement. I think he was 60. So the dynamics, I learnt the dynamics in the training environment between the older and the younger people. Everything is very, very important. But never assume anything. And I think if you're doing... A quick training course and the people have never seen the equipment you know that 100% for sure that's one thing and that's quite easy but if you're approaching training courses where people so for example engineers have been working with voicemail platforms or SMS platforms because these are the things I was faced with and they've been working with them hands-on a mobile operator premises for months sometimes even several years and you've actually never touched a live system in a mobile environment, as, as in at a mobile operator, then you've got to understand that even someone attending a so-called basic course, what I prefer to call a part one, for example, operation and maintenance course, they will always have, certainly the combined knowledge of everyone attending will always be more than yours. It doesn't matter how good you think you are, unless you have spent extensive time over a period of time, a period of years, working hands-on in a live environment, dealing with real downtime, impacting hundreds of thousands of people, you will never really know everything. What I learned was I actually became a facilitator. And I think ultimately that's what I've become today. As in Mr. Connectivity, I bring people together. I'm not saying I know everything about everything. I don't. Lots of you out there will know exactly what I don't know. But I know people and I can bring people together and know that this company or this organization are great in a particular area and indeed one size and one solution does not fit all so I really picked that up from my training environment and there is absolutely no shame in sticking your little hand up and saying I don't know there yeah. really isn't and people please do that and indeed yeah. I think so many situations in life if people admitted I don't know and they've got the whole issue of not wanting to lose face and you see this in so many business situations where if any of us are going to meetings and you've got different levels of seniority of people, for example, at a customer sitting in front of you and let's say you're trying to sell them a solution and you can see just from the eyes of some people there that they're not really getting what you're saying. 
but they don't want to ask you the questions because they're scared of, again, sticking their little hand up and asking a question yeah. because it won't look good in front of the managers. But it varies from culture to culture. In some cultures, I know for 100% for sure this is the case. So in the Indian subcontinent, for example, the expectation is a manager there should know everything or as much as possible. Whereas in other countries, for example, in Scandinavia, where I've recently spent a good amount of time, it's the ex- accepted norm, of course, if It'd be great if you know as much as possible, but you are more of a facilitator, you're more of a people manager there, and you don't have to know absolutely everything from a functional level. So many things I learned, which are very, very relevant today. I actually worked with somebody in one of the telecoms uh, groups that I worked in who was a question asker. You know, She loved to ask the questions, and she was not at all intimidated by asking what others might perceive to be very simple questions she just needed the answer she just needed the answer to go to the next level and i think that's something with which a lot of people don't do so after your training experience what came next what was the next chapter well it seems i was approached actually by another company uh, then called converse converse with an m it's not the training shoe company that was bought by nike but so many people got that wrong, and I, it would be nice if it was Converse. Because you'd yeah. worked in trainers before. I know, and I knew them very well, because they did sell Converse as well. Although they weren't functional trainers, they're fashion shoes. But yeah, so I was essentially headhunted by Converse to start up their customer training services operations, which was very, very interesting. So you're starting something with a total clean blank sheet, and I absolutely loved that. That's really exciting. I had to think of absolutely everything on my feet. That was good. But... Moving away from the pure training and training management side of things, I actually saw there was a gap in the market within the company because no one was actually proactively selling training services. The salespeople, when they were selling a platform, a voicemail platform, SMS platform, pre- platform uh, mobile data gateway, prepaid platform, billing platform, whatever it was Converse was selling, it was sold with a few days training and not, I have to admit, not too much thought was actually put into thinking about, okay, what does the customer need? How many people do they have? Can these people travel easily to a training site? Yes or no. So no one was doing anything like that. So I essentially went around the world selling training as a service to mobile operators globally, sitting with them, establishing needs, so training needs analysis in the truest word, truest sense, and selling it, selling the service. And at that time, like so, so many so situations. You created products and services specifically around training. Correct. I see. And I created the role. It didn't exist before. And there was a lot of resistance in, inside, particularly from salespeople, because they're going, no, no, it's training something we include for free with the platform. But I'm going, no, no, hang on a second. If you include something for free, we all know this in life. People naturally have the tendency, if they receive something at zero cost, they don't place a value on it. And if you do charge for it a reasonable amount, or if someone's saying, I want a package of systems and I've got a budget of $10 million, fine. But at least put the training package down as a line item for, say, $100,000. So they know they've got, it's a value associated with it. So when it comes to the time, it's not if, when it comes to the time they need further training because they've got new personnel, there's a defined price for it. So I brought that in to the company. And it was really exciting, starting a whole new area from nothing. So that was truly sales, but it was rolling in my training experience at the same time. So that was really, really interesting. That was my first foray into sales. And essentially, I stayed there. Okay. 
How long did you stay there for? I was with Converse for just short of 10 years. Wow. Yeah, it's quite, quite a long time. Of dedication. You must have seen some changes during that I did. Time. When I joined in July, it was July 1998, there were 450 people and it went up to as high as 7,000. But then the tech bubble burst. But then even beyond that, Converse experienced a few issues, shall we say, financially, on the financial side of things. And the company really went through the mill. There was a serious amount of redundancies. It got really difficult. But at the end of it all, you've got to remember that you've got your customers to service. And I never lost touch of that and focus that you have customers and you've got to maintain your client base. And those of you who've been listening to my podcasts or certainly some of the podcasts coming up as well or any of the videos I put out, well, now I talk quite a bit about the customer side of things and retaining customers is far cheaper than acquiring new customers. And that's something that sat with me for many, many years. So customer service is really, really important and reputation is critical. Brilliant. So after Converse then, after the 10 years was up? Just short, yeah. Then along came the wonderful world of what was then VeriSign Messaging. So I was picked up by what was informally known as VM3. So, But it was VeriSign Messaging. And that was part then of the security company, a mobile security company, VeriSign. But I joined at an interesting time because a few weeks after I joined, they divested the company and they actually sold it to a company that we all know very well from many of the vendor performance surveys here at Rocco, and that would be Cineverse. Of so course. Cineverse bought VeriSign. It was actually messaging and multimedia, I think it was. Is the proper company name VM3. That's why it was called VM3. And when was this, James? I joined in 1998. That was Converse. I left 10 years. That was 2008. So they were acquired, I think, Cineverse acquired VeriSign Messaging Multimedia in 2008, the back end of 2008, October 2008. There were 450 people. Cineverse did keep the majority of people on. And the integration, it was a bit tough, but it was decent. And it was good joining a really, really large company like Cineverse with the backing of Carlisle. What was the target of Cineverse in buying VeriSign? VeriSign at the time had good reach for mobile network operators. Again, something we all know very well today from the ATP SMS world, and that's a key driver for consolidation in the industry we're seeing today. It's buying companies that have good direct connectivity. Now, at the time, the focus was on person-to-person messaging, the P2P world. And in that world, certainly then, and I think even today, those that have the largest number of direct connections rule the roost. So they are top of the pile. They're kings of the industry. And at that time, Cineverse was, and I think it still is, in terms of the pure number of direct connections, the largest in the P2P domain. They did have an A2P operation, but it was small. VeriSign messaging did have term enterprise messaging, A2P SMS operation as well. And it was all rolled in together, and that grew fast. But P2P was the core of the, the activities. So this the we're talking about just uh, almost 10 years ago. Yeah. But Cineverse has moved on a lot since. So the, the messaging was absolutely critical and absolutely core. Today, we have so many other services have come along. So, for example, lookups and mobile subscriber intelligence, which use lookups as a base for it, and so many other areas. But... What I was involved with then, it was messaging 100%. 
pure. And I was dealing with P2P at that time and actually had very little to do with A to P myself personally at that time. But that changed. It did indeed. It did when I joined M-Blocks. So uh, how long were you with Cineverse before you moved to M-Blocks? Oh dear, I think I should have my LinkedIn profile up uh, in here. <laughs> well, people can check the link. Yeah, no, and I think to... I may get this wrong, but I was with Cineverse a couple of years. So I think it was 2010, 2011, I joined M-Blocks which is now part of CLX. So CLX purchased yes, M-Blocks. of course, yeah. Yeah, no, I joined M-Blocks and joined the carrier team managing connectivity with mobile operators globally. And that was A to P and P to P? That was A to P. No, M-Blocks were, it was 100% A to P. At that time, M-Blocks predominantly dealt with A to P SMS, but they did also have a big premium SMS division as well, and they were making some decent money. But you'll know, a lot of you that have been recently more involved in the, as well in the direct world of direct carrier billing, and that is inextricably linked with premium SMS because many services such as ringtones and things like that can actually be purchased using premium SMS. So premium SMS is still around, but the rules and regulations around it have increased considerably. And indeed, it was exactly this that happened in America and some other countries that made it quite difficult for some domains to remain, let's say, firm in terms of revenue with PSMS. It was difficult. It was a difficult world for a period of time. So we're talking about around seven years ago, you were with M-Blocks. Yes. And what was it like in M-Blocks? What was the A2P world like at that time? It was really, really growing fast. It was absolutely dynamic. Mblocks, I was based out of the UK, but Mblocks had a big presence in the US because the, the company had amalgamated with an American company as well. So there was a big presence in the US and they were strong in the US, ultra strong carry relationships in the UK and in the principal countries within Western Europe, a good presence in Singapore and Austra Australia as well. Of course, other countries globally, but principally it was the US, UK, France, Germany, Spain, Italy, etc. Uh, Sweden as well, and Singapore, Australia. Those were the principal areas of focus, I would say. And it was big. It was growing. It has some fantastic enterprise clients. And I really saw that enterprise was what was growing the business. We had a wholesale operation. And it's really interesting, the A2P SMS business, because so many of the people I worked with, my colleagues at Mblocks, are in different parts of the business. So in recent trade fairs and industry meetings I've been to, I see people XMBlocks people who are now with VU, you have XMBlocks people in what is now Vonage, so what was Nexmo, and so many other companies in industry. And a lot of people actually came through MBlocks. And if you think about it, you've got Matt Winters, who is the CEO of VU, you have the guys who set up CLX, you have Tony Jamu over who set up at Nexmo, was bought by Vonage, and other companies. And you could say me as well. And we all, what we all have in common is we went through M-Blocks. And so it was an environment of thought leaders or innovators in the It, it really, really was. And a lot of it was driven by Andrew Budd. And Andrew Budd, I think, is the, is he the chair emeritus of the Mobile Ecosystem Forum today, I think. And Andrew was the, the chair. He was the founder of M-Blocks. And he was the chairman of M-Blocks at the time I was there. And he was in the office fairly regularly, a couple of times a week. And if you got 
the opportunity to sit opposite him, you could have some really decent chat. It was very, very entrepreneurial, very, very interesting environment at that time. Who were the competitors of M-Blocks at that time, would you say? CLX, yeah, CLX. who actually bought them. Yeah, so actually the majority of the, if you would call it the usual suspects, there was Infobib was around, and many of the aggregators we know today and that appear regularly in our ATPS SMS vendor performance surveys here at Rocco were in existence at that time, many of them at exactly that time. But again, if you're thinking about the clock, roll back the time, everything like that. CLX and Infobip, I think, have been around since 2008, 2009. So something around that, like that. So actually, M-Blocks did have a head start. And actually, I think there's only one other aggregator that was set up directly to deal with just A to P SMS. That is older, just A to P SMS. That is older than M-Blocks. And that is Dialog, who was also bought by... CLX. Yes. Interesting evolution. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. So, how long were you in Mblocks? I was in Mblocks a couple of years as well, working on in the same team, working with carrier relations. So that was really, really good. But what I did have a hankering for, actually, and what I did was casting my own, was actually the world of enterprise. Because... The carrier relations side of things is absolutely critical. Having good direct relations with mobile operators is critical. Being able to negotiate a good price is absolutely critical because what's the point of having a direct connection if no one's going to send you traffic on it because it's too high a price? So all those things are truly important. But I noticed back then, and I'm absolutely seeing it today, and I'm sure we all are in the industry, that the key driver for the real volumes and I'm talking sustainable volumes here in A to P SMS and probably other areas of mobile engagement today are enterprises. And how you acquire enterprises, the enterprise business is very, very different from a sales perspective. From example, how you go around asking for a direct connection from a mobile operator. And the enterprise side of things is something I really wanted to get into myself. And it's actually it's something I find myself dealing with a lot more today, although most of my clients are mobile network operators. I am starting to deal with enterprises more directly as well. And I find that very, very interesting because those are the guys and girls that really need all our help across the industry. All of the companies out there listening to this, they need our help. They really, really do to get their marketing transactional content out. It's absolutely critical. They're moving more of their business online. It makes the barriers to entry essentially for any new company, if everything's online, it makes the barrier to entry is really low, much lower, particularly when server power and storage space, rack space, everything like that, and the equipment size is diminishing and the costs are diminishing. It makes things much, much easier to enter the market. And you need ways of differentiating yourself and getting the message out. So enterprise is key. So I really had an idea of what I wanted to move more into that direction. And actually... I've been in business now four years myself as Mr. Connectivity, and it's only until now I've been able to turn it a bit and get into that side of things. But it's interesting. So after Mblocks came your own? It did. You went out as a consultant? I did go out as a consultant and was decent management. I'd built up, obviously, some decent connections, and there were a couple of companies I was talking to at that time who I saw needed some help. 
one company who was an actually an SMS manufacturer purely at that time, and they were starting to dabble in the area of firewalls, they were very much approaching the industry from, hey, we're leaders in technology by our equipment perspective. And actually, the sale, when you're thinking about an SMS firewall and anything in our A2P SMS industry when it comes to the monetization of things, it's not a pure technology sale. It's a given that the technology is good and stable and you're keeping up with the latest threats, for example, when you're talking about anything anti-spam or sim farm elimination related. That's kind of given, but you've got to be good at that. But what you're actually selling is you are selling your solution more, actually, to the likes of the chief financial officer of a mobile operator because it's trying to get across to them what money you're leaving on the table, what could you actually grow, and how can you differentiate yourselves from the competition. So I saw that area needed some help with, with one company, and another company was a rather entrepreneurial mobile operator, and actually both companies people will know very well indeed. Am I allowed to say them, Jason? I don't know what confidentiality agreements you have, James. People know I've done stuff for them. So and they, they will know. They can see from your LinkedIn profile. They, they can see from my website. So people know. So my launch customers were Anam Technologies in Dublin and Jersey Telecom at the time. So those two. And Anam figures very, very highly as well in the Rock of Surveys today. And Jersey Telecom, you know very well personally, you know, Cara Murphy, that roaming, JT. They're very, as we discussed in our news desk, they are very innovative. Absolutely. And, uh, and that's what really attracted me to JT as well. You've got a very, very small footprint of subscribers. So you've got that. And at the time, they were 100% government owned as well. I think they still are, are they? JT. Government owned. So you've got that perception, small operator, government owned. They're not going to be entrepreneurial, but actually... I saw during my time with them that actually a really decent part of the profit for the whole group, I won't say how much, but a really decent profit from the whole group actually came from their operations, from the wholesale division from outside of Jersey. Yeah. It's so important. It really was. And what they're doing has been very, very innovative. And what they continue to do is very, very innovative. And I think you have operators around the world who don't have huge subscriber bases by virtue of the fact that they are in small territories and things like that. But it doesn't preclude you, it doesn't exclude you from being very innovative and actually offering services that large parts of the world would be interested in. So I learned that and I saw that really from JT. So the entrepreneurial spirit there and the strong technology, and it's all about layering the, the commercial and the sales aspects on top of strong technology out there really really important very very interesting so they were my launch customers and i've gone from there and what was it like working with anam anam based in dublin i think for me i find it mind-blowing but it's amazing if you think of how many technology companies certainly telecoms related are based in <laughs> ireland yeah. yeah based in dublin they're absolutely amazing they're truly entrepreneurial and I know actually a real, real good reason as to why Irish companies are very, very successful, apart from their attitude and how entrepreneurial they are. And the Irish people are known for their friendliness globally. We all know that. If you just think about how many countries around the world have an Irish pub, it's unbelievable. Yeah. I've been to Mongolia and visited a mobile operator there. Where did they want to go for a drink or eat? Tell me the Irish pub in Ulaanbaatar. It gives you an idea of the friendliness 
But the Irish government there are doing a very, very good job on the trade and export side of things, of helping companies in Ireland punch way above their weight. And I think many, many governments around the world and the export bodies can learn a thing or two from what the Irish are doing. And they've been very good, very good with that. But my, no, my time with Anna was very, very interesting. They're a very, very fast-growing company, very fast-growing. And also, yeah, just, just to mention, adaptive and Celsius, of course. Correct, are Irish. You've got Open Mind in Ireland as well. You've got Open Mind there based in Dublin. You've got so many others. Yeah. And they've been there for such a long time. And they're very, very innovative. So it is a hotbed of talent. Now we hear about Dublin fairly recently because Facebook have got their HQ there and so many other companies have got their headquarters there for tax reasons. Verizon also. Verizon, yeah. So they're expanding their employee base. It's hugely the likes of Facebook. And Dublin is an absolute thriving place. It really went through the mill economically in the economic downturn. We're going back, say, nine years. It really went through the mill. And people were in real difficulty, particularly with regards to mortgage defaults because simply the value of their houses halved more or less within a period of months. So it was really, really tough, but it's nice to see Ireland turning around the way it has and doing so well. I just wish some of that would rub off onto many areas of the UK, actually. I really do. Well, we have an interview with Adam coming up, because as you rightly pointed out, they have done extremely well in the SMS firewall event performance report, which we just concluded. Back to you, James. So... What would you say are the lessons you learned from your consulting experience as Mr. Connectivity? You've had so many different kinds of clients and so many different wide experiences. What would you say is uh, putting you on the spot here, but you are the major lesson that you have learned? Because it's not easy having your own business. I think the major lesson I've learned, if you're talking from my client's perspective, is Again, it goes back to my first, I think one of the first things I said towards the beginning of this interview, never assume anything. I've seen so many times where from the outside, we look and we stare at the huge glass offices companies have, the thousands of personnel. And our assumption is, wow, these guys and girls at this company, they must be so lucky. They've got all this resource. They've got all this money and budget at their fingertips. They must be able to go into any new area of the industry or any industry and make a success overnight. It is just not true. And because a company is of a certain size, it doesn't mean they do or are able to put focus on a particular area. And of course, my chosen specialist subject is A to P SMS and mobile engagement. So I've done work with some mobile operator customers, huge customers, millions of subscribers in one country or across their entire footprint around Europe or globally. And there may just be two or three people dealing with everything, ATP, SMS, mobile payments related. So it's mind blowing. Whereas you can have smaller operators, again, not wishing to big up JT too much, but who understand and get the opportunities and they have the same number of people, or in fact, more in some cases, dealing with their area and making a great success of it. So. I've seen that. So the size of the company does not bear any relationship with how successful that company in our area of this business, put it that way, because of the economies of scale you're thinking and everything like that. We're not talking about uh, online sales of books or anything like that, where you've got the Amazons, the Alibabas of the world, and of course, 
economies of scale are really, really important. We're not talking about that. It's very, very different. So that's what I've learned. Never assume the size of the company. Never assume a company like that has the expertise. But also never assume because a company is smaller or because it's located in a particular place, they're not going to be good at being able to do something. They are. And they absolutely are. And we see this in the world of A to P SMS regularly. And indeed, in one of my podcasts, I talk about the structure of the A to P SMS industry and aggregators. And we all mention, we've mentioned during this interview already, CLX, we've talked, there's InfoBip around with all the usual suspects. But there are so many aggregators around the world who are huge, bigger in terms of number of personnel than CLX and many, many other companies globally. But they have a very, very concentrated focus on perhaps one country, for example, the USA, and they execute that brilliantly and very well. And they go about it, don't make much fanfare. You don't see them at the GSMA WAS meetings, for example. You don't see them at the World Wholesale Congress in Madrid or other countries. You don't see them at these things. They just go about and get on with it. And it's important to understand that any company, potentially, doesn't matter how big or how small, but in our business, or particularly the business I'm in, the mobile engagement business, they can be super successful and have a really dominant position in the country. And they don't need to be huge. A lot of it comes down to the personal relationships with people you have in the mobile operators. Because you know, Jason, I'm sure from all your experience in the roaming world, it's like a very tightly knit family. Yeah. Nothing can be more easily explained than that. It's a family. It's around uh, two to 3,000 people who happen to know each other extremely well. And they don't really move from industry to industry very typically. So No. You will meet people that you've known for a long, long time. And they're simply working in a different company, but they're working on the same thing. Yeah, it is interesting. One question for you. One piece of advice that you would give mobile network operators... Make better use of what you have. And what you have, in most of their cases, is an amazing, strong brand name. And do not just use that brand name in the countries or territories where you have a mobile subscriber footprint. There is nothing stopping you putting, for example, a salesperson in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, a salesperson in Nairobi in Kenya, and a salesperson in Miami and actually going out and selling your connectivity services could be A to P SMS, could be P to P SMS, could be a sponsored roaming, could be whatever it is across the world. And again, this is my opinion, but if you're going to start off in Asia, I would put someone in Malaysia. If you're going to start off in Africa, put someone in Kenya, Nairobi. And if you're going to start off in the Americas and you can only have one person in one location, put them in Miami for connectivity reasons and language reasons. Do that. So don't limit yourselves. And yes, I know you cannot be expected to have the expertise for everything, whether it be roaming or IPX or mobile engagement. But there are some really decent people out there who know a thing or two, but most importantly can bring some great partners. And I know you guys out there at mobile operators are under some severe pressures in terms of budget you've got the capital expenditure of investment in lte 5g networks 
You've got so many other pressures, and I'm 100% aware of that, that budget and people resources are so, so pressed and squeezed. And of course, at the end of the day, many of you are public companies, and you've got shareholders to answer to. So I'm aware of that. But there are so many ways of doing things which don't involve upfront capital expenditure. So you can do revenue shares with people. And I think for me, the word partnership is absolutely key. And that's what I do. That's what I'm about. It's enabling the partnerships between mobile operators, aggregators, and indeed other companies in the industry. So because you could view aggregators as a competitor to mobile operators, let's say in a particular country, let's say the UK, I'm from the UK, and we've got mobile operators in the UK. Yes, the aggregators there are competing for the enterprise business for A to P SMS against the operators. But if an operator has a super strong brand name, but the operator doesn't have the number of people, the support, the knowledge behind them, what's stopping them from partnering with an operator? It's an absolute win-win. And it absolutely benefits the enterprises at the end of the day because they're being offered solutions which one or either of the partners, i.e. the aggregator on its own or the mobile operator on its own, would not be able to offer. So they're being able to offer those to the enterprise. And at the end of the day, who benefits most? It's you and me, it's our family, it's our friends, it's our partners with a mobile phone or any who are dealing with content on the receiving end of content in particular, whether it's marketing or transactional. And I think throughout my career and from day one, and even though telecoms and the mobile environment, it's not what I ever thought or dreamt about getting into, but it's what I enjoy and where I've been in for many, many years. It impacts positively, if done correctly, every single person on planet Earth. It doesn't matter how young or old, in which country. And that is what I find exciting. And personally, that's what drives me because I find mobile telephony magical, absolutely magical. With all this experience in mind and all the chapters you've taken in your career, what is the next step? Where do you think the mobile engagement industry is going and what would you like to see, what would you like to be involved with next in terms of mobile engagement? Well, first of all, there's a lot of consolidation going on in the industry. We've seen it. We talked about it during this interview. So I started off in MBlox. MBlox was purchased by CLX. I mentioned Dialog. Dialog was purchased by CLX. Nexmo was purchased by Vonage. That consolidation will continue. Absolutely will continue. And we will see that happen. And today, there are so many aggregators around the world. But I think going forward, there will be less. Less, perhaps in terms of number but the scale of the companies will increase because A to P SMS on its own, when you stack it against email or other communication channels on their own, then A to P SMS stands out as being something which drives a really, really high level of engagement. But you have OTT connectivity, you have voice over Wi-Fi, you have bots, you have all the areas that we know very, very well from the surveys and what we're looking into and we'll be looking into more in our surveys going forward and of course covering in master classes as well and those are areas which really interest me so people know me as mr sms mr a to p sms but i'm really really trying to say to people no i'm mr mobile engagement because that's where the industry is and if you are an aggregator out there and all you do today is a to p sms you can make some really good money and if you've got a focus particularly on a specific vertical for example so you focus on being 
the best ATP SMS engagement company in, for example, the health and fitness sector. You can make some very good money, you can make a good living. You can absolutely do that. But for longevity, you need to have a multi-channel approach. And out there today, we saw that in the ATP SMS and mobile engagement survey we conducted earlier in the year, we saw that there are actually very, very few companies out there that truly have real, genuine multi-channel capabilities. So that's for me where I personally want to take myself. There's more to life than just A to P SMS. It's multi-channel, it's mobile engagement. But as I said, it's the enterprises really driving the growth. And I personally would like to get more involved with the enterprise side of things. And in fact, that's what I've been doing lately with my direct carry billing activities. And that's really, really interesting. Particularly the small and medium-sized enterprises, those are the ones that are really growing our industry. You look around the world, most new jobs, are they created by public sector companies? No. Are they created by mega corporations? No. From reading the press, from looking online, it appears as though they are, but actually it's not the case. It's small, medium-sized enterprises that are driving growth in so many areas. It includes mobile engagement. And there's some forward-thinking aggregators out there, not wishing to name names, but I could, who are really, really getting this and focusing on SMEs in particular. That is really cool and really interesting. So enterprise for me is really it. Okay. It's interesting. James, thank you very much for telling us your career history. And we obviously will hear from you in future Chalk Talks and in our reports. We look forward to seeing how mobile engagement is developed in the so future. So I really appreciate the opportunity. It's a bit strange having the tables turned on myself, but I hopefully you've enjoyed it out there, guys and girls. And I look forward to seeing you, many of you, very, very soon. And thank you, Jason. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Look out for more in the Well Connected series in the coming weeks. Currently, Rocco is working on a new research project with operators on SMS Firewall. The SMS Firewall Vendor Performance Report will, for the third time, dig into MNO's opinions on these important vendors and how they are helping MNOs with monetization. MNOs can simply go to our research projects page to complete the survey. Every MNO who takes part will receive an exclusive free executive summary report containing the aggregated data of all MNOs who took part. Until next time, this is Jason Bryan and you've been listening to Well Connected from Mocker Radio.